Sports are such a big part of all of our lives, from the big plays to the unforgettable games. They continue to inspire us in unimaginable ways. But what happens to the athletes, the warriors and heroes of our time, when the game is finally over and the sport they love and worked their entire lives pursuing greatness at continues on without them? How do they cope with the transition? How do they find purpose, reclaim their identity, and work towards a vision of the future? As a former professional athlete, playing in the NFL for eight seasons, I know the unique challenges that these athletes face. On this podcast, these athletes will share their stories and how they navigate life beyond the game. What's up, everyone? I have a very special guest today. He is my first non-NFL player, actually. He is an MMA fighter. He played uh, college football at Arizona State, and he is a an amazing man with a wealth of knowledge. He drops a lot of different information here. It might be a lot to unpack, um, but you might need to listen to it a couple times. Make sure you get your notepad out because he is so wise. And he shares a lot of practical tips on how to help you with transition and just connect to your higher self. Um, he is a true, wise mystic. He shares a lot about his journey with plant medicines and how it's helped him on his life to finding purpose and identity outside of sports. And you know, he's uh, the director of human optimization, or he used to be, for On It. And he is just amazing guy. We have an amazing conversation and I really know that you guys are going to love this episode. All right, Kyle, what's up, man? Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Joe. Yeah, I'm really stoked to uh, dive into your journey. Um, I haven't heard too much about your actual athletic journey, so this is going to be fun. Um, So let's go ahead and, uh, you know, start with kind of you know, your early career, I know you played football in high school and college, and you kind of transferred into uh, the MMA world. So go ahead and talk about your journey through athletics, and then we'll kind of get into your transition process after that. Yeah, you know, I started, there's transition along the way as well. So as you know, um, let's see, I started playing football when I was 10 years old, and it was my first love, you know, it really was a way for me to let the let out, it was kind of how I take the pressure off the valve of, of life stuff. And, um, the team sport too, I really enjoyed because I had wrestled while I played football, but I always appreciated the team aspect. I appreciated having the camaraderie and, and a big group of guys and anybody who's played football, you know, like there's, there's a large team and that, that was always something I really it felt like family is something I really enjoyed. And that led me to walking on at Arizona state after junior college and, uh, played there for two seasons and that's where I really took a turning point. I know, I know one of the questions you have that you bring up with people after they finish professional sports is kind of how they change from their identity and, and they're able to move on and transition. And for me, this is really when I had to tackle that. You know, I had a lot of stuff from childhood that I hadn't dealt with. I had no real tools. And um, all of the Western medicine I could get my hands on <laughs> really sent me, you know, for a loop. So when football ended, that's kind of where I faced my, my darkest hour. You know, I went through really deep depression, um, hated the classes I was taking. You know, I'd only really been taking classes to stay eligible in football and classes that I enjoyed. 
and I wasn't left with much to look forward to. And I, you know, it, it, it boiled up to the point where I attempted suicide. I took every pill that I had, Vicodin, Valium, Xanax, uh, drove the top of parking lot seven on, on campus at Arizona state, stripped down naked and went to jump. And thankfully, um, you know, a security guard had spotted me, but that was the first sense spiritually where I'd ever felt something communicate with me outside of me. And it was just a very simple, not yet, not yet. And, um, this overwhelming sense of peace. I mean, that could have been the pharmaceuticals kicking in. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but, (laughs) um, I just had this wash come over me of, okay, whatever pain I feel right now, whatever suffering I'm in, it will end. And at the very least, it'll end when I die, regardless of my understanding of death at that point in time. But um, it just gave me a sense of peace, you know, and, and as the guy talked me down, I came down, I woke up 36 hours later in what my mom calls the loony bin, um, went off all medication. I didn't know what I was going to do or how I was going to do it, but I knew that the, the things I was being prescribed were having an impact on my, my ability to deal with stress. And they weren't getting to the root causes of any of the reasons I was feeling the way that I was feeling. So um, thankfully, I had a psychiatrist that I met with once. And I told him, you know, I have family members that have taken SSRIs. I'm not going down that rabbit hole. Uh, they were completely ineffective for my family members. And he showed me six different studies on fish oil and their their impacts on the brain. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm down with supplements. And so I started working with fish oil. And that really was like the first seed into health and wellness through nutrition and movement and meditation and all these different things that I would I would learn through fighting that was a big shift in my life there. And, um, maybe six to eight months later, I started tinkering with the idea of mixed martial arts, just as a, just as a way to train with people to push myself. You know, a lot of people, when they finish athletics, they still lift weights and still run. And I just felt like a rat on the wheel, you know, like running didn't do it for me. Um, lifting weights alone and 24 hour fitness didn't do it for me. It's not like you know, the big squat Wednesday with coach house screaming at us. And you got two guys on each side of you spotting you and everybody's saying up, 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 you know, it's a whole different experience. And so, um, for me, mixed martial arts was just a means of, of bringing back that camaraderie and that, that team environment and learning something new each time. So, you know, martial arts, you, you never quite master the game. There's always something new to learn and something, some skill to perfect. And that's what it started out as. And I had, a you know, the, the guy who owned the gym there, he had a small promotion called Rage in the Cage out in Arizona. And he's like, dude, you're, you're big, you're handsome, you're athletic, fight for me at heavyweight. If you like it, you never have to, you know, you can keep going. If you don't like it and you lose, you never have to do it again, but at least you can say you had one pro fight. And I was like, all right, all right, I'll do it. And, uh, my first two fights, I won it under 30 seconds. And from there I was hooked and I started tinkering around with training and really trying to dial it in. And, um, after my first loss, I moved back home from Arizona to train at American Kickboxing Academy. And that, that had been, you know, one of the greatest camps and still to this day is one of the greatest camps in the world. And it was right in my backyard in San Jose. So it just made all the sense. Uh, if I wanted to take it serious that I'd go there and, um, not long after being there, they had an opportunity for the ultimate fighter at two Oh five. And after training with guys like Cain Velasquez and and Daniel Cormier and other heavyweights, Daniel was a heavyweight at the time and undefeated. It was like, man, there's, there's no question I got to drop down because Brock Lesnar and other, other guys are cutting to make 265. I can't hang there. So I dropped to 205, got on the show, and that was my doorway into the UFC where I fought for six years. Mm, man, that's a wild journey. Um, thanks for sharing that uh, 
pretty intense. I know a lot of guys struggle with that, especially, you know, leaving football and, you know, getting to that point. Uh, we'll talk more into the tools, talk more about the tools and that um, that you use to help you now. How did those tools help you like in your fighting career? Um, you know, all the, the meditation and, you know, the training that it, that implementing those tools for training in that sport when you didn't have those tools during your football career, how did that make an impact? And what were some kind of the lessons from your fighting career that you take with you now? Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the beautiful thing about football is you get your ass kicked on one play, you have a break to reset, you know? So if it was going bad, even throughout a game at halftime, you get a bigger reset, you talk to your coach, you get some advice. Um, and there's some of that in fighting, you know, in between rounds, but really, you know, it's, it's much more constant. And I think that just leading up to the fight, you know, my learn about these things in Eastern, Eastern religions and spirituality about the monkey mind and, and the cause of, excuse me, the cause of all suffering of Buddhism. And, uh, it was, it was really born out of necessity, you know, the need to quiet my mind so I could be present and in the fight. You know, Bruce Lee talked about that. Don't fight angry. Don't fight in a state of fear. Um, just be in a state of flow. And that's why he has so many analogies of water, but, um, that, that for me, you know, I, I had, I had two different sports psychologists that I worked with early on in the UFC. One taught me some different breathwork patterns, very simple stuff, you know, like, uh, um, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name, but four seconds in seven seconds, hold eight seconds out and Dr. Andrew Weil. And, uh, and then from there, you know, 10, 10, 10, different things like that. That would just, they'd give me a focal point because at that point I couldn't just sit still, you know, I couldn't, I had no ability to quiet my mind. So breathwork really became the entry point there. The other sports psychologist worked on visualization. So one of the things that would cause me the greatest panic was standing next to my opponent for an hour in line for the weigh-ins the day before the fight. You know, I'm sitting there uh, incredibly depleted and every possible outcome runs through my head. And of course, no matter how good I was, I'm looking at the opponent. If he's shorter, he's thicker, stockier. If he's taller, he's got more reach. And I'm not thinking about his weaknesses. I'm only thinking about his strengths. And that was a mind fuck for me for, for a long time. So I would, I would just visualize that. I'd visualize like, what is the opposite of being in a state of fear? Well, if I'm loose, I'm dancing, I'm relaxing, I'm cracking jokes. And I'd run that, you know, the entire camp. A lot of the time I'd be focused on the entire week of the fight, you know, how I cut weight. I'd visualize being in the hot bath. I'd visualize walking up, uh, standing next to my opponent, cracking jokes, dancing around, listening to music, being myself getting on stage, flexing, and then walking out for the fight, warming up in the back room, all that stuff. And that made it so much easier because it had been well rehearsed. You know, whether that affected outcome or not, I certainly learned how to effectively get over the hump of being in a state of fear for extended periods of time, which as you know, that's, that's a, that's no bueno, no matter what you do in life. And, um, you know, those, those were really the, the first tools, but fighting itself gave me the the burning desire to want to learn more in all aspects of the game, you know, not just watching video and, and learning new techniques, but how do I recover better? Uh, what's the deal with ice baths? Who's this guy, Wim Hof? What's he doing? You know, any of these things that uh, intuition would draw me to or friends and other coaches would say, hey, you got to check this guy out. I would just dive head first in and not just read to learn about it, but really experience it, you know, and I think that's that's one of the key pieces in anything we do in life is to not just understand it, but to actually go through it and, and start to embody these practices. And fighting gave me those tools like nothing else did, you know, and, and along the way, uh, I had a boxing coach who was Native American who would take me out for traditional sweat lodges on a Native American land on the reservation and, and eventually started working with me with plant medicines. And that, that just changed everything. 
Mm. Yeah, man. Wow. You've been on this journey for a while, learning all these tools. That's fascinating. Talk about the difference, you know, coming up to the end of your um, fighting career. Talk about the kind of reasons that you transitioned out of that and the differences from handling that transition prior to, you know, transitioning out of football and, and the tools you used to handle that and the reasons why. Yeah, you know, I think um, it's something I'm careful with in recommending psychedelics or plant medicines to fighters is, is you know, I, I think we can all benefit from it, no question. And they're not for everybody, but I do feel like with the, the, the warrior's heart of most people who fight professionally, not only can they handle it, but it is necessary to kind of put out the fires of whatever caused them to fight in the first place. And at least, you know, not to you know, change them, that warrior spirit's alive forever, but to give them greater perspective and allow them to see life beyond fighting. And it certainly did that for me. The, the reason I say I, I, I caution myself and others to, um, you know, really push that narrative while people are still fighting is for me, the whole world was opened up to me, you know, and, and when you're fighting, it is the most important thing in the world. It has to be the most, the single most important thing on your radar. And if it isn't, you really don't have any business doing it. Um, so once, once I was exposed to those slowly, you know, I, I had had a shoulder injury that I was recovering from a torn labrum. That surgery took me a year to recover from just to get back to baseline. Then I was training. So between 2012 and 2014, which is my final fight, I had a long time to think about if I was going to fight again. And all along the way, I was working with plant medicines. And, you know, as I mentioned, I, I just, I was seeing the world with new eyes. I was, I was coming to understand myself and my relationships and everything in between that actually mattered a whole lot differently. And so fighting kind of lost that that big fire, that big spark that it needed, I think, to be successful. And even though I fought again, you know, in 2014, that was really just to see if I could apply this newfound knowledge in the ring or in the cage. And, um, you know, of course I went out and got my ass kicked in my last fight and that, that was like the nail in the coffin, you know, but, but, um, I think, uh, and I can't remember the question that started this, but, you know, I just, I just really felt like it was, it was so easy to transition from fighting as opposed to football, because so many different things have been opened up to me. I mean, there was no attachment to, I'm a fighter. This is my identity. This is who I am. And this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. The perspective of this is something that I'm doing in one stage of my life. And that stage will change was visceral. I mean, I knew that this is just a small piece and, and that what I'm doing now is not who I am as a person at, at any point in my life, but it certainly was, um, exposed in full view for me because of the plant medicines I was working with psilocybin and ayahuasca in particular, it really just gave me a uh, permission to explore and not know what I was going to do. You know, it gave me, um, I don't want to say above all else, but in terms of fighting above all else, the, the understanding that I don't have to have it all figured out. I can relax in the uncertainty of what's next in life because I still didn't know what I was going to do when I, when I retired from fighting, I was living in my mom's garage uh, working at a, at a strip club pretty much for my whole career in the UFC on weekends and, um, bouncing and bartending. And, you know, that's, that wasn't the end game for me, but I could retire knowing that I could put food on the table and knowing that whatever my intuition was going to lead me to, whatever the plants were going to lead me to, that that would be the next thing. And even if I don't know it now, that's okay. And that was mm -hmm. a huge turning point for me that allowed me to leave gracefully and not come back. Yeah, beautiful. That's um I want to dive deeper into the the power of plant medicines and psychedelics and kind of the science behind it. Um 
you know, as far as it healing the physiological brain trauma and then how it can open you up to different possibilities. But at first I want to kind of explore, um, I think a lot of guys, like you talked about with the identity and not attaching to this identity. I think that's what a lot of people, you know, athletes in general, but people as a whole, then they go through a big transition transition in life. They struggle with that identity and they're attached to this, this old way of being this old story of who they are. And it takes so much to like dive into that unknown. Talk about your journey of finding purpose and kind of any advice for people who are attached to this old way of being and they're, they're kind of forced into this new world. Like how do they navigate that? And how did you find purpose? Or is it something that's, you know, continuing fluidly trying to uncover it as you live life? Yeah. I mean, that, that is one of the ultimate questions, you know, it's, it's the question behind why are we here? Right. So it's more than, more than why are we here? Like we can, we can come to an understanding of this just simply is right. And many of the Eastern traditions teach us that like to, to be okay. Peter Crone talked about that on my podcast, that, that whatever's happening right now is just, it just is, it is the isness of all that is. And the sooner we come to grips with that, the easier life becomes. And so if I look through that narrative, I can, I can really feel comfortable in the present moment because it's just simply happened. This is it, right? Like Alan Watts said, life is a happening and I'm a part of that. There are two books that I've read very recently that I think can help people tremendously when it comes to identity. One is called Lizards Eat Butterflies by Dr. David E. Martin. And it really talks about how we're programmed and goes through every level of that. And it's not, I mean, I think the subtitle is the end of self-help books or something like that, but it's, it's fucking brilliant. I mean, I have never met, a, I've had the fortune of hanging out with this guy. He's coming on my podcast soon. Um, I've never met somebody who's so intelligent, so well-read and, under, and understands so many different things going on in the world at large. And at the same time has one of the deepest spiritual understandings of anybody I've ever come in contact with. So as he goes through this, it's not meant to be a self-help book. It is meant to jar you. And it's not meant to replace one belief with another. Just as the plants teach us, it's meant to tap us into our knowing. And one of the ways we do that is we have to uproot everything we were taught to be true that is likely a fallacy. And a lot of this tailors into identity. It tailors into who I believe myself to be as a person. And that is due to what I was handed down from parents, from culture, from teachers, from everyone else. And if I can get through that, I can come to that remembering process. And that's something plant medicines do such an amazing job of is helping us to remember who we are. Another way we can look at this through identity is Douglas Murray's book, Madness and Crowds. He was recently on Joe Rogan's. Um, both these guys read their own Audible. So if you if you like Audible like I do, that's a fantastic way to listen to them. But you know, Douglas Murray really dives deep into identity and identity politics and what's happening right, you know, in the world right now in the extreme polarization of, of our current society. And once we can see, you know, the, the, it's very easy to look at an extreme and be like, that's just ridiculous. You know, I would never do that. I would never think that way. But the truth is we all have a little bit of that in us, you know, and, and I think Jordan Peterson just did a, such a brilliant job of exposing that. You know, when you look back and think back to Nazi Germany, how could they do that? How could people get in line? How could everyone, how could all that happen? We have not evolved as a species since then. That is a mm. flash in the pan behind us. It is not, it is not echoed, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 years ago. That is right now. That happened yesterday. And so that is still in us to behave that way. And if we can at least acknowledge that, 
then we can start to sort what are the ways that I consciously choose to behave differently? What are the ways that I consciously choose to move through this world with more grace and more compassion and more forgiveness? And if I can hold that, even the, the, the worst circumstances through the lens of forgiveness without blame or resentment and to begin to see the beauty in all things, um, it's an excellent viewpoint. But, but madness and crowds is not, it's not going to teach you that stuff. I think lizards and bu- lizards eat butterflies will. Madness and crowds is going to point to what's happening right now in a way that, that is jarring. And all of that has to do with identity. So if we can use that as a mirror to look back upon ourselves, what do I identify with? What triggers me? What puts me in a state of being that is not, uh, that is not held with unconditional love? You know, if I can, if I can start to think and ask questions about myself in those ways, that can start to unpack a lot for me. Mm. Yeah, I heard some one of my friends said recently that we haven't so much evolved as a human race; we've just become more more domesticated, and we we think that's evolution because we have all these this technology and all these tools. But really, on a deep down human nature scale, we really haven't. We just become more domesticated which is fascinating. And I think, you know, the day we live in, uh, you're, you're all about human optimization. You've learned all these tools. And I think, you know, an important part of that is doing all these practices to become more present and, and get more connected to something greater than ourselves. But it's so tough to do if we don't feel good in our bodies. So talk about the importance of health, not only physically, but how that, you know, all connects to the mental and emotional bodies as well. No question. This is, this is a great question. You know, um, I liken it to Maslow's hierarchy. We have the hierarchy of needs of survival, right? And we can't really start to think about the spiritual lens or uh, to act compassionately if we have no compassion for ourselves. Um, if I'm worried about putting food on the table, it's quite unlikely that I'm going to, you know, think about procreation, right? If I'm, I'm, if I'm starving, I'm not going to think about procreation. That's a, that's a fairly easy lens to look through. We can apply that to the body as well. If my mind is consumed with background pain from a knee injury or from my neck hurting or any of these other things, that becomes the most important thing to address, right? Whatever's in front of you, Paul Check calls this the pain teacher, and he has a four-part series on Living 4D that is absolutely brilliant diving into this subject. But if we're in pain or if we're even if we're not in pain, um, we're caught in the societal loop of constantly doing where we go from one activity to the next. And I've, I'm, I've been, when I speak on these things, I speak on these things, uh, not, 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 not externally. I've lived all this stuff. I've, I've lived it myself. You know, I've been in physical pain many times in my life. Uh, I think anybody who plays sports this long has that under their belt. But at the same time, I've also been caught in the constant doing. I've also put work ahead of my family and I've lived through the pain of those experiences to be able to speak to it on the other side. But in those experiences, that becomes the singular priority. So if we're not taking care of the body, which is our tuning fork, it's going to be really hard to access higher states of consciousness or uh, different wave, wavelengths of information where we can actually tune in to something that is greater than ourselves. We can tune in to nature. We can get outside of ourselves just a little bit. You have to actually come to a place of peace and equanimity first. And then you can access these other states. And I think that's, that's beautifully written about in the Vedanta Treatise. Like if you think you're just going to sit quietly, but you have trouble sitting, yoga might be the first step. You know, cold baths, getting getting tuned up, seeing uh, seeing some type of therapist to quiet the mind. Any of these things, so you actually can sit still, is going to make uh, meditation that much more effective. 
So people that are first, you know, hearing about these tools and things like that, like we cannot overlook the body. And a lot of times if we're caught and in, in revved up, if you think of the harmony of the earth, the Schumann resonance, 7.83 Hertz, that actually mirrors our neurochemistry. So right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm in a, I'm in a beta state. If I'm in fight or flight, or I'm really gassed up, I'm in a high beta state. As I drop in a flow, that's going to be alpha wave state. And if I drop a little bit further into high theta, that kind of mirrors right at that 7.83 hertz. Low alpha, high theta is in harmony and resonance with the Earth's frequency. Most people don't operate there. We can drop in in meditation, but sometimes we actually need to exercise that energy out so we can sit still and drop down. And I, I look at, at weightlifting and running and different, different tools as tools for spiritual health. You know, I have to take care of the body first in order to be able to tune in. And of course, that's, that's just for me. You know, there's, there's plenty of people who, you know, spiritual masters, Eckhart Tolle does not look like he's hitting the weights or running and that dude's <laughs> tuned in, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, many, many paths up the mountain. But I think for a lot of type A people and athletes in particular, it is important to not let go of that piece. The physical body is how we access and tune that tuning fork. And the spine, the spinal health, this is why yoga is so important. My spinal mobility, um, it was told to me once that the spine is the antenna to God. And if I take care of my spine through moving into different positions, rotational exercise, not just bench and squats, but actually, you know, swinging a mace, uh, you know, rotational stuff like, like lunges with a medicine ball, different things like that, that get me to articulate myself in different ways. That has the ability to open me up in a way where when I sit now, I can access higher levels of consciousness. And, and really, if it's not even about altered states or accessing higher levels of consciousness, it's just initially about bringing me to a state of peace and equanimity internally. And if I can operate from there, I could begin to access all sorts of other information. I can think outside the box. I can see with new eyes. I, I'm, I'm moving out of the fight or flight tunnel vision of what's right in front of me. Where's my very next step? And I can begin to see with greater awareness the entire picture. And I think this is, this is the stuff that I've gravitated towards, you know, in the last five years, six years since retiring is really, you know, A, how do I, how, what is my foundational piece? That is the physical body. And that matters from not only just movement, um, to, to diet, to sleep and, um, and then happiness, right? So Paul check has this uh, ebook, the last four doctors you'll ever need. And he talks about this in great detail, but his four pillars to the body or body mind are number one, doctor movement. What is your movement practice? That would include yoga, any form of cardio walking at sunset and, and sunrise. Um, any type of movement is going to be in doctor movement. And if you overdo it, that's going to hinder you. If you underdo it, that's going to hinder you. Dr. Diet, what, which diet is right for me? And that takes some exploration and some self-learning. And there's, there's you know, different tools out there to help you learn quicker, but it really does take your own investigation to find out what's right for you. Dr. Quiet is your sleep habits, your sleep hygiene. And at some point during the day when you push pause, right? That could be a yin yoga practice if you're doing movement or tai chi, qigong, or it could be sitting quietly for a little bit. It could be breath work, could be an ice bath, but it is your quiet yin practice of going inside yourself. That's got to happen during the day too. If your only time to turn the mind off is at night before bed, odds are you're going to have trouble sleeping. But if you can start to literally, you know, just, just trickle this stuff in during the daytime, your ability to turn the mind off when you go to sleep is greatly enhanced. 
And then Dr. Happiness is, is your vision. You know, it, it's what is the purpose of me being here? What are the things that I'm trying to bring into my life and make manifest here? What is the ultimate goal? Right. And that should include yourself as a part of the all. And it should include the all. It should include be, you know, being of service to others. Right. And that's that's kind of the nature of the game and fit for service. To serve others, we have to be fit to serve. And that requires us taking care of ourselves first. And then outside of that, if I operate at a high frequency as the best version of myself, how much better am I at tackling the problems of the world with my family and then my job and my community and then beyond? Um, it's greatly enhanced. So I think looking through those lenses can really help us operate differently. But again, that that the body element is something that is not to be overlooked. It is absolutely critical. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to sit quietly and access um, deeper levels of awareness and thought around problem solving anything if my mind is always switched on, constantly doing, and I'm not taking care of myself. It just doesn't work that way. Mm, yeah, that's beautiful. Um... Yeah, for me, I mean, the, 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 these, these tools, I started using them all to really feel good in my body because, you know, as an athlete, a former athlete, there's just so much pain. So I was introduced to yoga to help myself physically and feel better. I was introduced to meditation during my playing days so that I could deal with the stress and perform better on the field and be more present. And then the more I started using these tools, it opened me up to these higher states of awareness. And that led to more compassion for myself, more compassion for others. And it does kind of you know, it's this idea of we need to heal the heal ourselves in order to heal the world. So talk about your evolution of your spiritual connection to the divine and kind of how we can how we're all much more alike than we are different. And talk about your journey with, you know, all the different religions that you've learned about. I know you're very um, versed in all of these different practices, Eastern mysticism and, and kind of how we can all come together um, by accessing these higher states of awareness. And that's really the key that we all need to find within ourselves. Beautifully stated, brother. Um, yeah, you know, I, 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 my first work with my with my coach Wheatsy was passed on. He he worked primarily with psilocybin. We would actually do them in the sweat lodge, and that's not traditional at all. So, if somebody's listening to this who has experience with sweat lodge, the sweat lodge, whether it's the Timis call or the Anipi, is in and of itself a ceremony, and it's typically not done with a, a, a powerful plant medicine like psilocybin or or peyote or any of these other things. Um, it might be done in prep for that or in prep for a four-day vision quest without food or water, but it's not necessarily done simultaneously. Uh, he, he, he would do these simultaneously. So he, he understood full, full well where I was at and really trying to crack, crack a, a hard nut open. And it worked, you know, it really started me to access, uh, just different levels of awareness. You know, I, I remember the first time my wife was on the land we split an ounce of mushrooms. I had five fighters coming to, to the land. And on the drive there, I had announced the split with all of them of psilocybin, golden teacher psilocybin. And, you know, one by one, I got phone calls on this long drive and they, they said, Hey, we can't make it tonight. And I'm like, I ah, no worries. Well, we get there. And I tell my coach, look, I'm really sorry, but everyone else peaced out. Are you still down? And he said, of course I'm still down. And so I said, well, cool. Just give us what you think we need. And you can have the rest as a thank you, you know, and uh, for providing and holding space. And he took out, he must have taken like just two tiny caps and he split, proceeded to split the bag and bless them before we ate them. And this is my wife's 115 pounds and we're eating these, you know, and, and uh, she looks at me with a mouthful of mushrooms like this seems like a lot. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 this is fine. Um, but that was close to 14 grams each. You know, that really 
the deeper dive, and I'm not pushing anybody to start here. Obviously, this was guided by a high-level black belt, in my opinion. Um, it was a different scenario, and we were prepped, and that land is sacred land, and we were held, you know. But that take us that took us into levels of consciousness and awareness that are far beyond what I ever could imagine. And then at a certain point, we started working with ayahuasca, and that too did the same. You know, um, one of the first downloads that I had from ayahuasca was something that, that they talk about, they've talked about it in the book Sapiens, that most indigenous cultures believed in something called animism, that whatever is animating me is animating all things, and that whatever soul I have is in the mountains, the trees, the plants next to me, the walls of this house, everything is animated and everything is some form of consciousness which is intelligent in its own way. To viscerally understand that, to, to go beyond believing it or being like, oh, okay, it was like, fuck, this is, wow. And to know it, you know, and, and many great teachers talk about this as we move through the conscious thinking intellectual mind that rationalizes things, what the inner critic that judges things and says, yeah, but maybe it's something else, right? It just goes so far beyond that into a knowing, which is really a remembering. And I think that's what we're all gearing towards. It's to remember the true nature of ourselves. It's to, to remember in the face of all the programming we have, which is immense, the true nature of ourselves and our deep interconnection to all that is. You know, Rumi said this is one of my favorites. He has many, many amazing poems, but he said, you're not a drop, you're not, you're not the ocean or you're not a drop of water in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. And this goes into quantum physics. It goes into the holographic reality that we live in. It goes in, it's tailored many, many times over through our new, new science. But to viscerally understand this goes beyond anything you could ever read in a book. And Ted Decker, who's a great spiritual teacher of mine, mentor of Aubrey's as well. He wrote 49th Mystic and Rise of the Mystics, which is largely told through the Christian lens, but also through the mystics lens of all mystical, mystical traditions, um, is really that understanding that, that everything is God. We're not separate from this. We're not, it, it's not a God that sits outside of us. And that God is, does have unconditional love. And there's no judgment awaiting me for what happens in this blink of an eye experience that we call life. Um, a visceral understanding of reincarnation, a visceral understanding of many, many, many other things. You know, that all came to me through ayahuasca. And then from there, I started to look into these different traditions that had been speaking about it for thousands of years. Like, all right, where in human history does someone access this outside of ayahuasca? Because if, if the information is there, if we are all connected, then there is a knowing. There is, there is somebody that's come in contact with this. And as it turns out, there's quite a few cultures that have come in contact with this. And, um, you know, the last thing I'll say that, uh, on this before I, I know I've been speaking for a while here, but, but Christianity was something that led me astray. And I think a lot of people, um, and I don't mean astray, like, uh, us down, a, down the wrong path. It was, it was the perfect thing for me to say, mm, I disagree with far too much here. This isn't right. Mm. And in the end, come full circle to now having a much deeper understanding of what Christ consciousness actually is, the level of compassion that Christ taught, forgiveness that Christ taught. And those, those weren't the focal points in the churches that I went to. Those weren't the focal points in the stories that I read. A lot of the focal points had to do with fear. A lot of them had to do with don't do this, not act in this way. And, um, Thanks to guys like Ted Decker, Paul Selig, and many others, I've come to find that relationship 
not only rekindled, but known in a way that I couldn't have understood it before. And I think a lot of us who are averse to religion will will find that. Uh, Paul Selig says that religion is like a mountain with diamonds littered through it, but you have mm. to dig to find the diamonds, right? There's gems in every religion. And what psychedelics in large part have helped me to do is to know those gems for myself and then to look through the stuff, to sift through the translations, to sift through the different things, to find where those gems lie. And I think that's been a, a beautiful teaching for me as well that has really paralleled with the psychedelic journey. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I have a very similar experience with Christianity and, and having so many questions, but I am grateful for it because it led me on this path of discovering you know, what all these religions are really trying to make sense of in the first place, which is this, this idea of what is greater than ourselves and what is the connection. And I think what people get lost is they get connected to this, this, they intellectualize the belief, right? And it's not a felt experience. And when you do sit with plant medicines, you, you fully experience what the divine is and that connection and something greater than ourselves. And, you know, I love what you talked about with Jesus. Like his, like I, I asked my dad the other day, I was like, you know, if Jesus was here standing in this room right now, do you think he would identify as a Christian? And, you know, he, he, he said, oh, he is Christian. And I think that just showed a lot because, he was actually Jewish and Christianity was formed around him and it's gotten so lost in his, it's not actually sharing what he was actually trying to teach. Right. And when you can actually connect with these higher states of awareness and connect to this loving vibration, that's really fully embodying, you know, what they call as the Holy spirit or this Christ consciousness. And that's really what he's trying to teach. And that's really beautiful, but let's bring it back a little bit for people that aren't really you know, familiar with psychedelics or maybe just getting into it. They're interested. I think a lot of people are becoming more interested. There's a lot of science around psychedelics and how they are so powerful in healing um, anxiety, depression, and PTSD. So talk about, especially as athletes, I know this is the reason I got into ayahuasca and I started researching it on a deeper level is because I realized that it's a medicine that can, you know, heal the physiological brain. And we're learning more about neurogenesis and how the brain can heal itself. And when you get into these psychedelic medicines, they actually create new neural pathway connections in the brain and can actually hear and heal and lead to neurogenesis. So anybody who's interested in that, especially former athletes, speak a little bit on uh, the science behind it and the physiological response and how it can actually heal you on a deeper level and not just about you know reaching higher states of awareness. Yeah, it's such a beautiful point that science is finally catching up to um, is this idea that all tryptamines, all classical psychedelics, so tryptamine would be like dimethyltryptamine, DMT, uh, the Sonoran Desert Toad, 5-MeO-DMT, uh, ayahuasca, of course, which has DMT and a number of other alkaloids in it, in, in harmine and harmaline found in the vine, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, LSD. You know, They all have the ability to not just shift us in a way that gives us greater perspective and awareness and heal the software and un unpack some of the programming and allow us to, to, to see the world with new eyes. That is an entire conversation in and of itself. But they have the ability to heal the hardware, the physical structure of the brain. And this becomes exceedingly important for people who have been exposed to activities that can create CTE. You know, I mean, in football alone, I would have had stuff to heal from just having played from 10 years old to 22 years old. But now looking at, you know, my whole fight career and the amount of damage I took in sparring alone, which was far more than I, than I ever received in the octagon on fight night, um, there, was a lot, there was a lot that needed to be done there. You know, I mean, there were, there were fights that I had had where... I couldn't really think clearly for days, if not weeks after the fight, you know, just kind of like floating in a haze and not super depressed, not some of the, you know, traditional symptoms, but it was definitely there as I look back on that, you know, and especially in 2012, 
So really, if you want a new lease on life and you want to have the ability to heal these structures, these plants are a part of the whole. They're a part of the orchestra of all that is. And they are here for a reason. They're not just here to crack us out of our, uh, you know, um, mental loops and, and negative thinking. They're also here to heal us physically. And I think that there's so much there. I mean, even cannabis, THC specifically is being looked at right now and how it can heal the brain. It clears tau proteins, beta amyloid plaque, both are required to cause Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, all forms of dementia come from a buildup of these plaques. And that can happen through diet. It can happen through head trauma. It can happen through a number of things. But THC from cannabis is, is phenomenal in its ability. You know, CBD is phenomenal in its ability to lower inflammation. And as it turns out, all these things exist in that one plant. So really it's about how do I best work with these things? You know, and for people that haven't really heard much about it or are just now getting into wanting to learn more about it, there's some excellent books that have been written. Um, you know, one of my favorites on ayahuasca is, is DNA and the Cosmic Serpent by Jeremy Narby. It's a fantastic exploration. Obviously, Graham Hancock's work in Supernatural is one of my favorites. But even for people that are just interested in microdosing, Dr. Jim Fadiman wrote The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. And it's a great book. It really talks about the science behind microdosing, uh, the protocols that he used that he, he believes are to be the best. And uh, from there, you know, just what's possible within those spaces. And he even gets into how you would set up or construct a, a, a macro dose, you know, a, a deeper dive with a sitter and with somebody if you don't have necessarily have the means to make it down to the Amazon or you don't necessarily know where to go to find ayahuasca stateside. Um, the book is just incredible. You know, and there's a lot of information out there. I think um, Ben Rudnick works for, do you remember the company he works for? It's like Third Third Wave? Third Wave, third yes, wave yes, Yeah, Third Wave right. Psychedelics, right? So they have a podcast that is largely focused, and their website as well is largely focused on the science of microdosing. And there's a ton of benefit there. You know, it's a great way to dip your feet into the shallow end and learn how to navigate those waters. Um, and of course, you know, the deeper dives, I think that's to, to Terrence McKenna's point, you know, he said he was, he was given a lecture, one of his great lectures, he opened it up for Q and A at the end. And, and one of my favorite things he's ever said was somebody asked him, is there a wrong way to do psychedelics? And he said, yes, if you don't take enough. And everyone started, <laughs> la everyone started laughing, right? And he goes, I'm serious. I'm absolutely serious. In the, in the psychedelic revolution of the 60s and 70s, you'd have 30,000 people at Golden Gate Park and they're passing around a joint. Everyone's having a little wine. You take a mushroom cap, somebody, the little LSD fairy come by and gives you a hit of acid. And it's really this blurred experience. That's, it's, it's still experiential and it could be transcendent. But at the same time, it's more of a party than a ceremony, right? And, and, I, and I completely can understand that because I've, I've done, you know, every drug under the sun, good and the bad and the ugly. And, um, I've had experiences with psychedelics amongst friends and nature that were really transformative, but it's not quite the same as the deeper dive, you know, what he calls the heroic dose. And that would be five grams and up of any, any form of psilocybin. And for a lot of people, that's not a starting place. It's a place to work up to, and it's not a place to do it solo, even though he recommends at some point you do it solo. Um, it's something that can take place over time. And, you know, one of the things that Graham Hancock points out is that you don't, there's no one singular event that you, you have that heals everything. And if you have a lot of trauma, you don't have to worry about the kitchen sink getting thrown at you. You know, as within life, the macrocosm is mirrored by the microcosm of the plant medicine journey. 
And you only get what you need. You get what you can handle at any one particular point in time. And I think that's an important thing to understand is like, you know, if, if, if the closet is full of skeletons, I may address one small thing from there, or I may get a couple things, but it's not going to break me. And if it's guided well, and the intentions are there, and I'm able to learn how to surrender within that space, all critical to the macrocosm of life, I'm going to get the most out of that experience. Mm. Talk about, you talked about ceremony and, and doing these kind of medicines in a ceremonial container rather than recreational and, and how we can learn from the power of ceremony, not just you know, using plant medicines, but creating ceremonies in our everyday life and the power of, of bringing that intention into not only a ceremonial space, but creating life as a ceremony and bringing more intention to everything that we do and the power of intention. Yeah, there's, um, well, I mean, on the, on the ceremony aspect, let me jot some stuff down here. So ceremony, you know, East Forest talked to me about this when I had it on the podcast that really you can create ceremony from anything and it's quieting the noise, right? So we have the noise of life. And even if it's dead silent in the house, if my mind's racing, there's a lot of noise internally. So how do I learn how to quiet that noise? And oftentimes beautiful music can bring us into a place of a focal point, similar to breath work when I meditate. And so if I have beautiful music to take my attention somewhere, that can guide me through an experience. And music is absolutely essential in ceremony space, in my opinion. Uh, the ikaros that an ayahuasquero or curandero will sing are meant to guide you through your ayahuasca experience. And they do just that. Uh, I, I recommend people at some point make you know the, the pilgrimage to the Amazon or to Costa Rica. Um, you know, our, our good buddy Dan is the CEO of Soltara. That is one of the best places I've ever been to. They work with Shipibo Shaman flown in from Peru. A lot of people say, why don't I just fly to Peru? Well, <laughs> ayahuasca is hard enough. Making your way down there is, is challenging. And then of course, no air conditioning and a number of other things can add to that level. And that's, that's a beautiful experience. But at uh, Soltara in Costa Rica, you got air conditioning, organic food. You have Shipibo Shaman there working with you. And you have a number of translators and people that can help you unpack that. In addition to that, they have a three-hour orientation. You know, when I went there a couple of years ago with my wife and, and uh, a couple other great people, I, I really was not looking forward to the orientation. I thought like, shit, I've done this 22 times. I'm no expert, but I don't need an orientation on, you know, how to use my flashlight or any of this other stuff that I thought they were going to go over. And halfway through the orientation, I looked at, at Natasha and I was like, we should have been here first. Like, imagine how much better how much more we would have extracted from each ceremony if we knew and understood how to work with medicines the way they're teaching us right now. So I, I cannot speak highly enough about Soltara. They're absolutely phenomenal. They're opening up again, I think, at the end of this year. Um, but just a, just a fantastic place to go and experience a completely guided and safe setting for ceremony with ayahuasca. Mm, I would agree with that. Yeah, I went down there for my first experience and it was beautiful the way they they were able to structure and make you feel safe and comfortable and, and, you know, providing the medicine in such a intentional way. Right. And it's not just something to go, go dive deep and, and work on your shit. It's like they have, you know, medicine people there, integration coaches, you know, really helping you unpack on a deeper level, which is really beautiful. Um, you know, let's take a step back for people well, that are just me, getting Yeah, go ahead. Hold on one, one second. I just want to, uh, the reason I wrote it down is because you had two questions. One was on ceremony and one was on intention and surrender. So I want to, I want to dive a little deeper on those topics because uh, I had Tim Corcoran on the podcast and you got to experience his medicine with the soul wander. 
out in Tahoe. And he's, um, of course coming with us and fit for service to Sedona. Uh, but he's, he's beautiful. One of the things he mentioned on, there was a study that the Institute of Noetic Sciences performed on all transformational practices. So they looked at everything from ayahuasca to, um, you know, drug rehab programs, anything that had a high success rate. And what they found universally were that two things mattered when it came to your success and transformation. Number one was intention and number two was surrender. And these are things that come up when we get into ceremony space, right? You, you want to have a reason you're there. And the greater that reason, in my opinion, uh, and, and through personal experience, the greater things I receive because they're a focal point of what I'm working on while I'm in the medicine. As opposed to say, oh, I just want to see what, what ayahuasca can show me today. It's a, I'm going to get more out of it if I have a reason for being there, if I have a true calling to be there. That's my intention. Surrendering is not only surrendering to the feelings that come up and, and maybe being nauseated or needing to purge or any of these other things that can accompany in that experience. It's also surrendering to how, that, how my intention unfolds. You know, I may not get all the downloads in that experience, but if I drink for four nights, Hopefully I get it on a different night. I may not get it in the experience of ayahuasca itself. It might happen as it continues to get unpacked for the dieta that follows for the next month. In any case, Joe Dispenza talks about this. Dr. Joe Dispenza said, the way we work with intention and surrender is that we set our intention, what we choose to make manifest in our own lives, and then we table it and we surrender to the how and when that happens. So if we're caught in, I want it now, or I want it this way in particular, the how and the when actually cause suffering. It is when we release the how and the when that we truly surrender and believe that that intention is so. And this is the way Christ taught us how to, how to pray. It is to act as if it is already so. And if we can live in that space, we can connect the dots to the thing we're trying to manifest much, much greater Mm, I love it. Yeah. Like I found out like intention is prayer, right? I mean, that's what, what prayer really is, is setting this, this strong intention and living more intentionally, not even just, you know, bringing that intention to a medicine space, but actually waking up in the morning and setting an intention for your days, you know, setting an intention of your food that it nourishes your body. You can bring so much more intention into your life and it actually allows you to become more present. Um, you know, back to the athletic space. And I want to talk more about like being a, a, a fully embodied male bringing balance to the masculine and feminine within us. Um, I know it takes a lot of work, especially in our culture, our patriarchal society. Talk about your journey of finding that, that feminine energy within yourself and, and bringing balance and how that's healed some of the uh, maybe more out of whack kind of masculine traits that a lot of, especially athletes and these egocentric, especially like football, um, deal with and how they can find balance. And, you know, this, this idea that you know, showing our emotions and healing those and being able to express how we feel in the moment is, is, is shown or has been told to be weakness in our society. But talk about the power and your journey of healing that within yourself. Yeah. And it's, it's both too. I mean, we'll dive into the masculine as well. For me, for me, the feminine, I mean, that is coached out of us, right? And, and to a degree, the masculine has been coached out of women. Young women are taught, you know, that, that, Hey, you're not supposed to, uh, be angry. That's not a, that's not a female quality, you know, hide your anger, right? And men are taught, you know, you, you suck it up, pussy. Don't cry on the field, rub some dirt on it, and that kind of thing. And to a degree, these societal things have put us in a bad position. Now we see a complete reversal of that. And again, that's the reason to read Madness of Crowds with Douglas Murray is that it's not right to overshoot in the opposite direction. And mm -hmm. it's also not, it's a, it, 
anytime we look through the lens of blame and resentment, we are missing the mark. And the true word of sin is to miss the mark. Eckhart Tolle talks about that in A New Earth. The true definition of sin is to miss the mark. If I aim an arrow and I don't hit the target, I have sinned. That is what sin means, right? So if I am, if I'm looking through the lens of blame and anger, it's not that we don't have accountability for police brutality or any of that stuff. It is that it cannot end with blame. That is not that is not what gets us to a place of peace and equanimity on either side. And it also is off-putting. It also makes people resistance. Like if I say, Joe, you piece of shit, you did this, this, and this. Are you receptive to the way that I'm communicating my needs? No, yeah, you're put on defense mode, right? So we have to relearn how to communicate with one another. And that starts within ourselves. How do I communicate to myself? How is my inner self-talk when I'm alone? If I'm pretty damning and pretty critical of myself, do you think I'm going to be nice to other people? It's not likely, right? If I look at the world through the lens of, all the power systems that are here. And there are, but if I look through that lens and I feel weak and I feel powerless, am I going to empower others or am I going to make other people feel weak and powerless? We have to, we have to start thinking about these things. These are big questions right now in our society. But, but to your point on the feminine, uh, a great teacher of mine, Mary Margrave taught me a lot about the feminine. What she said was the feminine doesn't speak through words. The feminine speaks through emotions and the feminine is within all of us. You know, the, 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 and the masculine is within all of us. And it's not right to damn either side of that coin. What we have to look to is, is it unconscious feminine or conscious feminine? Is it unconscious masculine or conscious masculinity that we're working with? And that needs to be our navigation tool. It is not the world needs to be more feminine, less masculine. It means the world needs to be more conscious in their femininity and in their masculinity. And so the conscious feminine listens to these emotions. If I feel angry, that's the feminine speaking to me. Why do I feel angry? Well, there's a transgression that has happened. And something Mary pointed out to me is if I'm in a state of rage, that aims to destroy. I can no longer be in that space. I need to remove myself from the equation. If someone else is in a state of rage, they need to remove themselves from the equation until they can circle back after breathwork, a walk, whatever their tool is to calm down from rage and then reevaluate. If I'm in a state of unclean anger, which we see everywhere, there is blame and resentment behind my words, and I'm aiming to hurt another. So again, I must do whatever tools I have to reset myself. If I come into clean anger, clean anger aims to resolve. And this is just it. We've never been taught these tools. So if I feel angry and it's too much, I might stuff that down thinking that now I can actually talk to somebody without anger, but it's still there burning inside me. It's going to cause physical uh, dysfunction. It can even lead to disease if I'm too angry for too long. The feminine works in that way. Can I honor what's happening inside my body? Can I come to a place where I'm capable of crying when I feel pain and know that it's okay to let that out? Can I do things? Can I act and behave in a way that, that is more relaxed and not in the need of providing some type of machismo or bravado, that fake male energy? Yes, that is honoring the feminine right? And, and the feminine ultimately is a state of receptivity. That is the yin energy. Can I be in a state of equanimity where I can listen? This is something plant medicine's taught me as well. If you're trying to think your way through everything on a plant medicine journey, your mind's going to race. You have to learn how to push pause on that so you can actually listen and receive the downloads that are coming through. And we all need to do a better job of listening to one another. If for nothing else, even if we're in disagreement, just to understand where that person's coming from and why they think the way that they do. 
that requires a dose of the conscious feminine. For the masculine, uh, I've never read a better book than King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. And uh, it's by Robert Moore and another Jungian analyst. It's incredibly important that we heal the masculine. And that doesn't mean more femininity. That means more of the divine masculine, more of the conscious masculine. And through these archetypes of the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover, which also parallel perfectly to women, you simply substitute king for queen, we have some really important archetypes to look through. We look through the lens of being the king of our own inner kingdom first. And the warrior sets out not to destroy, but to guard the highest ideal of what that kingdom is. And it's guarding it with the the sword of light. And this is getting airy-fairy right now. I understand that to most athletes, but... It is, it is simply to cut through the truth. It is to use discernment. It is to, to cut through the noise to see what is true and what is true for me. And this book goes so much deeper, but one of the things they talk about being union analysts is the shadow of these archetypes. So right now, if we think of warriors in the world or kings in the world or anybody who's in power, it's not the archetype itself that's the problem. It's the shadow version of that archetype that we see. And if we're looking at the shadow archetype of a wounded boy dressed up in a man's suit, we can't blame masculinity on that. It's not toxic. It is simply someone who needs to be healed to step into becoming a man. And without rites of passage, without rituals that allow us to face our own inner demons and in our closet, that is a gaping hole in what masculinity is missing right now. We have to, to seek challenge and push through it. Athletics can give us that to a certain degree, but Nothing will move us in that way like initiation. And whether that's plant medicines or whether that's four days without food or water guided by an elder, these are very important things that have been done for thousands of years throughout cultures to bring boys into manhood. And there's uh, a million other examples they give within that book, but I highly recommend for people struggling with this, if whether you're a woman or a man, to understand the divine masculine better. There's no greater book than King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. And I think it's highly illuminating what's wrong in, with culture today, but also really how we got here. You know, and if you look, uh, there's a story from Anahata that was great. Anahata has been on the show a couple of times. You know her. She'll be out in Sedona with us doing breath work. She's a phenomenal teacher. She has twins, a boy and a girl, and her girl said she's going to go on the Women's March when Trump got elected. And Anahata said, oh, okay. And being the wise elder that she is, she said, okay, I want you to go but I just want you to look out right now when you're, when you're there and tell me who is there in love, who is there in support of women and who is there in rage, who is there in anger towards men, who is there in blame. And just, just, just be the observer. Just take account of that. And that's that. I want you to go. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to be in love for women and I want you to come back and let me know what happened. And so of course she comes back and she's like, wow, mom, you were right. It was all hate. There was very few people in love and support of women and in support of women's rights. Most of them were in blame and most of them were really angry and pissed off. And look, it's okay to have these emotions. That is the feminine speaking through us. It's okay to honor those emotions. But to lash that out is the thing that will cause more division than anything else. To strike out upon another verbally, physically is the thing that will push us further apart. That is not how we come to a place of peace and equanimity within ourselves. And it is not a way that we direct some sense of healing, that we can bridge the gap and come back to a place of clean anger where we're using these signals within us to find resolution. 
it's a very powerful story that we can all learn a lot from, especially in these divided times um, and very well articulated with the, the masculine and the feminine and bringing more awareness and consciousness to those aspects of ourselves. Uh, you know, talking about, you know, where the world's at, um, kind of just want to ask you, what's your vision for the future, both individually for yourself, your family, what you want to create in the world and collectively where you like to see the world go and, and head uh, in a positive way? Yeah, those are, those are, those are big ones. I think the easy one for me is just that I'm, I have, it's something Tim Corcoran talked about, you know, when people start working with plant medicines or they, they start looking at archetypes, a lot of people resonate if they're doing work on themselves, they resonate with the wounded child or the wounded healer. And that means some shit happened to me when I was young. I need to unpack that. I need to heal from that. And as I do that, I'm going to help others get through that. And that's a great space to be in. It can be a good motivation. But prior to that, we have the archetype of the innocent child. And the innocent child is the pre-trauma child, the one who looks out into the world with wonder, who sees what, what Native Americans called God, the great spirit, the great mystery, right? When I look at things and I say, oh, this is a great mystery. And I simply have wonder and awe and appreciation for all that is. That allows me to deal with uncertainty a lot better. That allows me to relax into the present moment and say, okay, I can't quite figure everything out and I don't necessarily need to. I just need to be in acceptance of that and work on my track, on myself and work on my, my, uh, my inner kingdom that stretches out. Self can stretch to include all as it is, as we are part of the all, but first with me, second in relationships with those that I'm closest to, family, and then in the office, and then in my work, and then in my community locally, and then that extends further and further. So it really is, if you, if you, uh, you want to change the world, you got to start with yourself. You know, you need to be the change you wish to see in the world. And if we operate from that place, there can be a, a greater degree of healing and a greater degree of equanimity. And that's, that's, that's my focus internally. It's, it's a work in process. There is no such thing as the top of the mountain. My understanding of the infinite nature of reality is that you know, and this happened in a ketamine journey before I even read about it. Of course, synchronistically, <laughs> everything I'm reading right now confirms this, but that the, the old adage, know thyself, is not just for us. It is for God as a whole. It is the reason we have an infinite existence. It is the reason for reincarnation. It is the reason for God experiencing itself in all forms it is because God is not a finished product. The all consciousness is ever growing, ever evolving, ever learning about what it is. And it's doing that through each of us as individual attention points within the whole, not separate from it. And I think if I look through that lens, that gives me a greater degree of peace because if we look through the more divisive times, as we look through what potentially is going to happen no matter who wins the election, um, I can have that peace knowing that we're all still figuring this out. And that that's never going to change. Will we come to a place of peace and equanimity as a society? I don't know. There's a lot of prophecies that state a, uh, a large group will move on to somewhere else. And the smaller group with their heads connected to their bodies, as stated in the Hopi prophecy, will usher in the fifth stage of human consciousness. And I think um, more and more that becomes apparent to me that the ways that we need to operate is to simply go back to what worked and to decentralize big powers, we need to centralize locally. And that simply means 
what systems are broken from finance to food and water supplies to how we eat our connection to land all these things it doesn't it doesn't need these giant theories of how we actually do that it can simply be let me focus first on myself then on my family and then on my community and can i start to build something with like-minded individuals where we take care of the land and honor the land and that's where we gain our food from and that our water supplies there and that we can um not be stuck to the power grid if the grid goes down. Can we, can we work towards things that actually prepare us in the face of whatever comes? That answer is yes. And it's actually easier to, to accomplish than most people think. But it really, you know, the, the vision I have of the future looks very similar to the past in that mm. more and more we start to integrate these old technologies. We integrate plant medicines, but we integrate our local systems that honor the people that we're closest to and at the same time, onto the land. And if we do that, we're going to see big change. And that doesn't mean we won't fly in airplanes, we won't have the internet or any of that stuff. I'm pro all of that. But can we live in a world that that works at both levels? And I think the answer is yes. Mm. So I have another podcast called Quantum Coffee, where I just talk about these kind of deeper questions of reality. And I know you're really into the quantum field and the connection and what does it all mean. And I'd love to have you on that as well, because... I feel like I could talk another hour about all of this stuff. Um, and it's really beautiful. I loved that uh, when you said, you know, my vision of the future looks a lot like the vision of the past and bringing that back. And it's amazing. Um, so my final question for you, bringing back to, um, you know, the athletes that are tuning in, you know, any last advice for former athletes going through, a, you know, a difficult transition, a tough transition, trying to find themselves, trying to find purpose, you know, some practical tools or tips for them on their journey to find, find themselves. Well, first and foremost, be guided by your intuition. It's a weird thing because this, this inner critic actually is a program. You know, if you, 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 of all the native peoples I've worked with and read about, there was a knowing that drove them. And that gut instinct that we have can be switched on. And something that I talked to you guys at uh, Fit for Service in Tahoe about was intuition does not need a why. It's the inner critic and the rational thinking mind that needs a why. And every great decision that I've made in life it was intuition that led me there. Even, even as small as like, which book do I read next? I'm going to use my intuition to figure that out. And that is right 99% of the time. I pick up the thing that I need to do. I meet the person that I need to meet. Um, I step into the job that's going to help me learn certain things that's not forever, but it's going to be the thing that fuels me going forward. And I think if we can begin to trust that and to let go of needing to figure everything out, we'll find the compass that keeps us on track. Boyd Vardy mm -hmm. talks about this at length in um, The Lion Tracker's Guide for Life. It's only three hours on Audible. It's as short as a Rogan podcast. Highly recommend people. I know I've been listening to, uh, mentioning a lot of books. And then, of course, Lizards Eat Butterflies, because Lizards Eat Butterflies will sh just show you the depth of which we've been programmed for millennia and how we're just handed stuff down generation after generation. And, you know, Don Miguel Ruiz talked about this in um, the four agreements, when he talked about the domestication of man, and I know you mentioned that earlier, we are more domesticated, more than ever. And we have this false narrative that this is the best time we've ever lived in. That might be complete bullshit. You know, Graham Hancock's work shows that there were intelligent civilizations with at least equal to, if not better than technology in the past. And I mm. think if, if we can begin to understand that, it's like, well, shit, how many times have we been reset? How many times do we make it to a high level of technology and then something happened? Well, in any of those things, 
I don't necessarily need to figure that out. I just need to see, well, where's my compass? What am I tracking right now? And if I can simplify it to that, if I can think of a singular priority, one thing that's for me, not, not in the work that I do, not in the, the obligations that I have as a family man or a dad, but what am I tracking that's for me? And if I can use that lens to guide me, that will lead me to other things. The tree gets planted, more seeds come off that tree, and that, that plants many more trees that lead to many more things. And that starts to unveil and unfold the consciousness that is Kyle Kingsbury. Mm. Mm, beautiful. Like having real trust and real faith. Like that's, that's what they talk about in all these religions and everything, like having faith, right? And, and trusting and connection to ourself. Man, you're such a wealth of knowledge. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me. I know there's going to be a lot in here, lots to unpack for people, a ton of value. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, go ahead and let the listeners know where they can find you and um, you know, follow you on your journey of trying to change the world. Thank you, brother. Uh, Kyle Kingsbury podcast. That's where you get to hear, you know, uh, everything on health and wellness, how to how to work on the body, the mind, mental, emotional, spiritual, plant medicines. Excuse me. Everything in between can be found there. And then, of course, if you want to contact me at Living with the Kingsburys, is my wife and I's joint family account on Instagram. We're kind of off all all other social media, and um, that's basically it, brother. Two 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 places you can get a hold of me. Easy peasy. That's smart. I think a lot of people can learn more from uh, kind of, you know, finding more balance within their social platforms, which is really cool. Uh, man, I look forward to seeing you next week in Sedona, man. And um, yeah, man, take it easy. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Have a good one. All right. Later. Okay, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Kyle is such an amazing man. Um, I got to know him a couple years ago, and I've learned so much from him. Um, he's a full embodiment of what it means to show up and reach for your highest potential. Uh, I know he's mentioned a lot of different things in there, and there's a lot to unpack. So if you need to go listen to it again, go right ahead. Uh, reach out to him uh, and follow him on his journey and go listen to his podcast. Uh, he's got and a wealth of knowledge, and he's an incredible man, and he has a lot of value to add to this world. And I'm excited to be on this journey with him. Um, if you guys are former professional athletes and you are looking for a community of your own and you feel somewhat isolated and know that you want to work towards reaching your highest potential with a community of like-minded guys who are striving for the same thing, then visit theheartcollective.com. That's the heart, H-A-R-T, collective.com. It's a community built exclusively for former male professional athletes where we can come together and support one another on this journey to reach our highest potential and make a positive impact, not only in our own lives, but our families' lives, our communities' lives. And by doing this work, hopefully have a bigger impact on the world. I look forward to connecting with all of you. Also, if you'd like to leave a review and rate this podcast, that would go a long way in supporting my mission and trying to help my community of athletes trying to find purpose and identity and become the best versions of themselves. I appreciate your support.